0: Debates on religion were at the forefront of intellectual life in the Anglosphere in the late 2000s and were kept there by the frequent terrorist attacks happening in western cities in the past decade. In the last few years, this topic has largely receded as new fault lines have appeared in intellectual life, especially around the importance that should be granted to group identity when trying to understand human phenomena. As even the United States become less religious, political passions seem to fill the vacuum left by the loss of religious faith. With my guest for this interview, Helen Pluckrose, we revisit questions concerning religious faith, discuss their relevance in today's intellectual landscape and highlight the importance of the criticism of religion that had been put forward about 15 years ago by the so-called new atheist writers. The intellectual courage and respect for evidence of the new atheists is more than useful to deal with simplistic and irrational ideologies beyond religion only. So hi everyone, I'm thrilled to be here with Helen Pluckrose, welcome back to the podcast Helen.
1: It's lovely to be here.
0: Uh, So you're a writer and an editor. Um, Your most recent book is Cynical Theories, which was written together with James Lindsay and published last year in 2020. You worked until recently as editor-in-chief at ARIO magazine. Uh, And recently you launched the Counterweights Initiative, which offers helps to people uh, confronted to pressure to conform to what you call critical social justice in their lives, uh, in particular in their professional lives. So we will touch on that maybe a little bit later in the conversation. Our first topic will be something quite different. Uh, probably there are some similarities, but we will talk about uh, religion, first of all, and atheism, and in particular, the so-called new atheism. So I should perhaps explain briefly what that is. So it's the, the name of used to describe a forthright and uncompromising criticism of religious faith and practice, which is usually associated mostly with the successful works of Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, also uh, several other writers. If I remember correctly, one of the first things which you had mentioned in our previous interview was that among the first things you were writing outside of schoolwork, so to say, uh, were texts that were sympathetic to the so-called new atheism, so can you tell me a little bit more about that? Why were you writing about it? What had been your experience with religion? what made you made you drawn to new atheism?
1: Okay, so i I was yeah I, I was very much in the the new atheist space, and that that was really when um, people sort of first um, started uh, seeing me on the scene at all and that was when I was um, arguing about religion. I was um, very critical of religion. Um, I, I didn't write um, an awful lot of essays about it at that time um, but I was certainly, I, I would have been considered one of the new Atheists, um, certainly, and um, I still hold those views. I am still very critical of, of religion, both as a epistemology and um, as um, a, a producer of highly illiberal ethics.
0: Okay, and um, I mean, what was your, your sort of background in this, in, I mean, in, in the domain of religion? Were you raised religious? Did you leave a faith at some point or were you always uh, non-religious?
1: Okay, so I, I, my parents were both atheists, um, but I, uh, at school um, in the UK, we have um, 15 minutes of collective worship a day, Christian worship, where I was taught that Christianity um, was true and compelled to pray. And um, so, of course, I I was encouraged to um, believe what my teachers told me. No one suggested that when they were teaching me about maths and literacy, I should listen to them. But when they were telling me that a god existed and wanted certain things, I should take that with a grain of salt. So I just believed that this was true. I became extremely religious um, myself as a child. I um I got myself baptized and confirmed. I suffered um from um scrupulosity, a form of OCD which is about being about hyper religiosity and worrying constantly about whether you have sinned and um whether you're in a state of grace and um so I became quite unwell uh, with all of that and um religion wasn't a positive experience for me at first um well it, it was at first that you know in in primary school it's uh, essentially nice stories about um about humanism and and brotherhood and um good samaritans and things although the bit about global genocide by flood is is probably not appropriate for um you know, very young children. But um, as I got older, and I I read the Bible um, entirely um, four times between the ages of nine and fourteen, and I became very very worried about the concept of hell. That my parents, particularly, were going to to go there because they didn't believe in God. That anybody could go there and that this could be in any way good. I also had some growing concerns that my religious education teacher, my, my secondary school, had its own chapel. And it's it was a private school, but it it, you know, it, it was normally Christian, the same as state schools are. Um, and it um, they, they taught me that homosexuality was a sin, but that it could be cured. And this didn't fit very well um, with the, my my feelings towards a particularly lovely uncle I have who is gay and, and happy and a very good person. so i I became really quite um unwell with it. i I stopped being able to believe by the time I was about sixteen. I just I kept reading the Bible. I was reading theology. I was trying to make sense of it. And there was so much contradictory stuff, so many things that, that just weren't true. And we knew they weren't true. Um, and, I, you know, it's sort of <laughs> the, the Bible. I, I remember as a child, I remember reading the Bible and there's a, a story in which um, they managed to produce speckled goats by having the goats, um, procreate while looking at something that was speckled. And I'm thinking, if, if this was God inspired, he would know about genetics, you know, he would know this, this is, these are the writings of uh, an ancient tribe, these are not uh this is not the divine knowledge, so i I became an atheist intellectually, but I continued very being, being very anxious mm. psychologically and thinking what what if I'm wrong? What if I go to hell? What if this is a test of my faith and i I became so um so unwell with this that i that I was actually hospitalized um on a couple of occasions mm. because of o c d scrupulosity now we know that this might be there's a cyst on my temporal lobe and this is related to hyper religiosity so there's a chance that there's a a biological reason for me having become such a strong religious believer while being the the child of two atheists (laughs) Wow. but um yeah, I, I I struggled with that for a long time and then I began to read the works of The New Atheists and particularly the work of um, Sam Harris and Michael Shermer, The Believing Brain, um, and some of Harris's work on, on the soul and, and how we can know that soul is actually brain. What we think of as the self is the brain and we can assume That the brain, that the self dies when the brain does. Mm. Now, for a lot of people, this is a frightening thing, and it's something that makes them drawn to religion. For me, it was a big relief because if my my grandfather, um, the people that I loved who had died, um, had ceased to exist, they weren't being tortured. So, I this was very liberating um, for me, and I, I was very grateful to the to this. The new atheists, as they were called, for producing these texts and helping me to finally free myself from that.
0: Yeah, that's that's an interesting story. <laughs> uh, I I don't think I have so much of a, an interesting personal story as as a background to this topic, so I, I will not discuss my own uh, much. But what what you said is is interesting. Um, I mean, for many reasons, but in, in particular, I'm always interested in. You know, people who become obsessed with uh, the idea of sin—I mean, not the idea, but the sort of the the consequences uh, of sin and uh, the threat of hell. I'm sure you've heard uh, Armin Navabi also discuss this topic. Uh, He was raised in in Islam and he became extremely scared of just the, the, the possibility of going to hell after death. And it seems to me that, um, you know, if you really, if one really takes this this belief in, in what happens in, in the afterlife, according to the, these major religions, seriously, um, then one should be extremely worried. Because if one of the likely outcomes is an eternity of pain and torture, it makes all the sense in the world to be, um, I forgot the term that you used, but to be hyper aware and um, you know to develop some sort of OCD uh, related behavior because you should organize your whole life into uh, around sorry you know avoiding that I mean no other thing makes makes sense to me I would I would say
1: but I think like let me you you are looking at things literally I looked at things literally I think a lot of religious believers do believe quite literally Mm -hmm. but they also don't seem to give it a great deal of Of thought, I've seen people who are committed Christians um, spend more time preparing for their pension, Mm. um, putting significant effort into that, than they do sort of looking at the state of their soul and whether they're going to heaven or hell. Quite a lot of people who consider themselves Christians or Muslims or or believers in any faith that has an afterlife tend to have a, a more benign view of a God who generally agrees with them and is looking after their their loved ones in hell and um, will make sure that they see them again one day and often these kinds of believers aren't the problem um on, on a general it's it's the literal believers who are the problem it's the people obviously the the greatest problem is the people who will blow themselves up in the middle of a crowd of people in order to go to um heaven and um you know some some people have said well this is um, because they 72, 72 virgins but really when a lot of the when I, I've looked at some of the narratives of um, of jihadis who have uh, martyred themselves, the other promise is that you get to take seven people mm. um, to heaven with you whether or not they have been good Muslims. now that makes a lot of sense to me and there was a girl in the UK who went and joined ISIS. And her reasoning for this was she was worried her parents weren't good enough Muslims. They were going to go to hell. If she went and martyred herself, she could make sure that didn't happen to her family. Now, this is a really, you know, but I can can intuitively understand that. It's horrible and this is why I dislike religion so much, because I can't remember who it was who who said it, but it it really does make good people do terrible things.
0: Yes, it was uh, Steven Weinberg, and we will actually get back to that that very sentence, because I think it's it's interesting to discuss. Um, Yes, so, to uh, you know, focus a little bit more the discussion on new atheism. So these these books by Harris, Hitchens, Dawkins, Dennett. You also men- mentioned Michael Shermer, and one could mention others: Anthony Grayling, Jerry Coyne, etc. Um, they were quite successful, and they really uh, contributed to you know putting debates on religion on the sort of the, at the forefront of intellectual discourse, at least in the English-speaking world. I, I certainly don't think we had such a phenomenon in, in, in the French-speaking world uh, at the same time. But at least in the English-speaking world, it was quite noticeable. And uh, so <clears throat> there were also, um, I mean, there were many people who were, like you and I, enthusiastic about these, um, these works, Critic- critical of religion. And of course, there were many people who were also quite uh, hostile to it, quite uh, critical. And uh, there were many books written in response to these books. And um, since I had really liked the works of the New Atheists, I decided to also look at what the the answers were. Um, Not expecting to be convinced to be be honest, but just to see uh, what... (laughs) What maybe could be the, the least bad arguments that what one could mobilize in, in favor of religion, and um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I wrote this, I wrote this book now, which is out on uh, Amazon's Kindle platform. I called it uh, New Atheism, which apologia sort of indicates the point. I mean, indicates the fact that the the point was to look at the religious. Uh, apologetics that we used uh, to sort of counterattack <laughs> uh, in reaction to the, the new atheist books. The way I organized the book is I found five very recurring themes in the um, in the responses to new atheism. so I can just mention them uh, very briefly now and we can go through them a little bit more in detail but the first is uh, well something you, you've mentioned in passing which is, this maybe this distinction between religious uh, literalism or extremism and more moderate forms of religion. This is something on which uh, religious apologists insist a lot. There is uh, something which is a bit similar, the idea that new atheists are extremists themselves. All the arguments there are mobilized uh, under the question of the relationship between science and religion. This is also a big recurring topic, of course. Um, there is the question of morality which is also a huge recurring topic and finally there is all the debates which uh, you know, took place around Islam and what criticisms of Islam were made by the new atheists and were they, were they informed or not so the first topic of criticism of new atheism that was made was that Probably, I mean, according to their critics, they focused too much on religious extremism, or they failed to make distinctions between, uh, you know, extremists and moderates, as uh, people often call them. Um, The idea that the new atheists do not really understand what religion is and how it functions for most people, maybe they were focusing too much on on the texts. Uh, and not enough on sort of the, the day-to-day uh, reality of religious belief and practice. So this is, you know, one of the first and most common ways in, in which religion was sort of defended. Um, so the idea that, okay, you guys, Dawkins and the others, you don't really understand uh, religion very well. Uh, and I'm sure this is something you've also encountered, right?
1: Endless arguments about it, yes. <laughs> In fact, all of those subjects are. I've had endless arguments about. <laughs> yeah,
0: so I mean, there's many things to say about that. Um, you know, I mean, I think there is too much insistence on the, the part of the religious apologists on a distinction between extremism and moderation that would be neat and sort of binary and, okay, anyone who is not an extremist is a nice, tolerant, loving, moderate. I think that's a bit simplistic. Um, This is one of the things that can be answered to that.
1: I think that as, as well, religious people, particularly Muslims, I've noticed mm-hmm. they don't like uh, they, they don't like to be called moderates mm-hmm. because they, if they're devout believers, they believe that they are very, very Muslim, but they are doing it correctly. Mm-hmm. They will often argue that the correct interpretation of Islam is a liberal, and inclusive, and peaceful one, and that the extremists are just doing it wrong. And um, that's that's of course one of the problems with the um, different ways to it, with with believing that you know what the supreme creator of the universe believes in the first place, is that this can range from anything from being kind and giving money to the poor to um, murdering people.
0: <laughs> yes, and all of that is in, is in the books. I mean, it's not <laughs> it's not that the books, the religious books, only recommend. You know, nice or less nice actions, but there's a little bit of everything. So that's that's the that's the whole problem, and this is where the questions of interpretation and the related I, issues I think arise. That, yeah,
1: with that, I I think where where the problem arises, and I think in Christianity, are you, are you familiar with Saint Augustine and his um, reading with charity principle? Uh, um, because I'm not sure. No, I don't
0: think so. <laughs>
1: So th- this is where it comes in, in for me, because I, I, I studied um, religious narratives at, at postgrad because <laughs> I'm just going to make use of all the reading I'd done <laughs> when I was very, very devout. And the idea, so for Augustine, he said, um, when you're trying to interpret the Bible, you interpret it in a way that is good. So if, once you've interpreted it an, in a way that's good, then you've got it right. And I think he, g- he gave an example of a passage of the bible where it says that you um that you should take babies and swing them around and smash their brains out on rocks which um i think was about a, a rival tribe um or a, a non-believers or something and he said now this is not literal we you know that you should how you interpret this is that you stamp out heresies as soon as they arrive this bit is metaphorical now stamping out heresies as soon as they arrive is also rather violent and and oppressive. But this is the problem, and this is what human nature does. Christianity evolves as humans do. We're now seeing a greater acceptance of homosexuality, um in the church we're seeing um women more women being able to be vicars um we're seeing a lot of, of changes i i predict that the concept of hell will eventually go but the problem is that christians um are unlikely to say uh actually these texts were horrible and we needed to change them, they were likely to say we, re- we interpreted them wrong and this is the right way to interpret them and it's because of the cultural zeitgeist. So as we become more liberal and more humanist, so do the religions within the society, but they always lag a little behind. So we saw in the UK that four out of five people supported gay marriage, where Three out of five Christians supported gay marriage, so there was still a majority of Christians who supported gay marriage, but they were not as many as um, the general population. So th- there's always this moral lag. Mm. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's many things to say on, on, on this, and I think you've touched on on plenty. But I think there's also um, the fact that people who you might think are uh, very moderate or okay they might not be calling themselves moderate but the, the religious apologists would like them to um, or would like to call them moderate, or, or at least would like to present them as showing that religion need not uh, imply intolerance or that sort of thing but many people who seem very uh, tolerant or moderate uh, might have uh, you know, very strong beliefs, like Sam Harris was uh, mentioning Paul Riesel's showing that, I don't know, it was close to half of the American population, not quite, but several dozen percent were thinking that probably um, the end times would occur during their lifetime. One can cite, you know, just general religious authorities relationship with um, criticizing religion or mocking religion you might see figures that are who are always presented as moderates like the current Catholic Pope uh, if you ask him to opine on religious cartoons or the the cartoons mocking the prophet he will say that um, it should not be done the, the cartoons should not be drawn uh, otherwise uh, you can expect to be punched in the face that was the his reaction. Mm -hmm. So moderation itself comes in moderation in a way. I mean, this this could be a catchphrase to to summarize this. I mean, I don't think it's as uh, simple as that to say that most religious people are not terrorists. Uh, There is still a lot of, you know, sort of intolerance and obscurantism, which is uh, attached to religion and which, Okay, it's not as striking, but still uh, very much present. And th- there's also a little variation actually on this theme, which is some writers have argued that uh, religion is sort of devoid div- uh, of any intrinsic intrinsic content. People just project their own pre-existing moral commitments or any sort of belief on it. This is something that, for instance, uh, Reza Aslan has argued. You know, there is just a text. It doesn't have any intrinsic meaning. This is sort of a um, sort of a fast food version of postmodernism, probably. Uh, and um, people just project their meaning onto the or their belief onto the text, and that gives the text meaning. But you cannot blame the religious texts for uh, regrettable beliefs. This is the the position which is really uh, sort of taking the the debate about interpretation to a an extreme
1: yeah I, I i mean i think that there's there's an element of of truth in there in in that um yeah you know, a personal the way that a religion manifests is a combination of um the the holy text and the belief system and the individual psychology right and sort of surrounding culture. So there's a reason, for example, that only 1% of Pakistani um, Muslims believe that homosexuality is acceptable in any way, while 50... So um, in, in America, six, uh, 52% of um, Muslims believed in same-sex marriage. So culture is obviously making a big difference, but to suggest that the texts don't have um, any influence at all is um it is is going ridiculously too far we wouldn't say that if we looked back at narratives um that um justified the holocaust or slavery we wouldn't say um yes but some people um interpret this in a very moderate way and and they um you know that they actually have lovely ideas um in relation to it and that you know that they they wanted to just look after people and and make the country better you know that doesn't happen and religion people who are going to apologize for religion I respect them a great deal more if they are reformists than if they are revisionists so somebody who will say yes the bible says this and this is clearly immoral uh, the quran says this and this is clearly immoral we need to get that out of the religion and um, that is more respect worthy, even though it, it then raises the question of um, well, was the prophet or um, or the or the, write, the writers not divinely inspired then or or what's what's happened? Um, but then the people who say, uh, we we just interpreted it right. wrongly actually um, you know what what's come down through culture is is actually nothing to do with the religious texts themselves it's just been some bad actors that have used power and this is what the true essence of Christianity or Islam really is and I you know I, I understand that people have to if if you believe if you're a believer then and you believe that God is perfectly good, the only logical explanation for the murder and oppression of people in the name of that God is that those people have misinterpreted what God wants. So at the beginning of of her book on Islamic feminism, Amina Wadud, um, essentially makes the argument that Allah is just, oppressing women is unjust, therefore oppression of women is against the will of Allah. So, this is the same argument as St. Augustine. (laughs) And um, it takes us in tiresome circles where we have, yeah, we have the people who are looking at liberal interpretations. We have the people who are honestly reforming and admitting that perhaps the original writers of the holy texts got it wrong. And then we have the people who want us to see religion in a purely metaphorical sense. So then we get to, I I think, although I don't want to misrepresent his views, um, I think there we have someone like Jordan Peterson, who is interested in the grand myth, the narrative of Christianity, um, literally believing that it's true. And this um, manages to annoy both atheists and um, literal religious believers. So, um yeah, I, I think that that's an important um, part of the, the problem. I don't see a solution to it. Did you in, in your book um, manage to kind of uh, navigate a, a way through it and, and say how, how we should we should think about this?
0: I think I mean, I don't think it's, it's something I focused on so much to try and say what religious people should do with their with their texts. But I did, I think, write at some point something similar to what you were saying, which is, um, if you want to defend religion, well, maybe in the best way possible is to say that or admit to the, to the bad parts, uh, to the worst parts, which is um, what you were saying. And then I think it gives you firmer grounding to actually defend maybe what... Uh, you see as the the better parts um maybe the, the moral dimension of religion uh, I, I don't think there is much to defend the uh, epistemology uh epistemological dimension of religion in, in any um, capacity but uh, yes i think uh, being <laughs> forthright and not yeah trying to uh, convince yourself that everything can be just interpreted away uh, is probably the more um, constructive path.
1: I, I think this is where those of us who who have um, ethical frameworks that aren't religious have an advantage. So liberals like me we can look back at um, liberalism in the past and see that it was failing on on many counts you know if we look at that um america being founded with the liberal ethos of um it's self-evident that all men are created equal whilst um institutionalizing slavery um there's a problem and that is then resolved by saying um this isn't compatible with liberalism we're doing liberalism wrong (laughs) And um, doing liberalism better, and there isn't any reluctance on the part of liberals to say we might still be doing things wrong, we still need to do things things better, and evolving and adapting, and this is why I think secular frameworks that do evolve and grow um, have an advantage over religious ones, which abound in texts that are either the written, you know, from anywhere between four thousand years ago to the early medieval period. There's there's only so much you can do with that. I
0: Agree. <laughs> uh, okay, maybe we we can move to the the, the second family of arguments that were, I um, mean, according to me, uh, mobilized against the new atheism. The, um, the idea here is that, okay, maybe it's, it's kind of a mirror image of the first argument. So first you say that, oh, religion is not the problem, it's those who might take it too far or distort it somehow, um, make it too extreme. Um, and then um, people have also accused the atheist, the new atheist, sorry, of sort of being Uh, similar to that, but in the opposite direction. So the New Atheists are extremists themselves was the the accusation. Their criticism of religion was too hostile. It was too uncompromising. Um, They wanted to prevent people from believing in what they wanted to believe. These were the sort of recurring themes. Uh, It went so far as uh, accusing the new atheists of wanting to repeat the, uh, you know, the bans on religion that happened in the in the socialist dictatorships or, uh, um, yeah, th- th- this sort of stuff. I think this this family of argument is perhaps a little bit less, uh, a little bit less interesting than the first one because it's it's just easier to see that it's not true and, and there's not much in it in in my opinion. I don't know if you. what you might make from it. Yeah.
1: I I agree. I, I, I think yeah the um the argument that um that the new atheists are, are too anti-religion um is well, well what what is too anti religious I, I I look at um you know somebody will write a book or they'll tweet or they'll give a talk and um, about um, a, a disbelief in God and the problems of religion. And people will say, why can't they just leave Christians alone? But if somebody writes a book about the God existing and the positives of religion, um, atheists don't all rise up and say, why won't you leave atheists alone? We just tend um, not to either read the book, go to the talk, or we argue with it. So. I don't think that, um, you know, we're not criticising religious people for having strong views and expressing them strongly we're criticizing what those views are and giving reasons for them you won't find atheists turning up on your doorstep wanting to argue with you that god doesn't exist they're not going to um be street preachers that you know they're they're not equivalent to religious believers in that way and i know the majority of religious believers also won't yell their beliefs at you or knock on your front door but some will so, um, yeah, that, that argument doesn't work. Some people believe very strongly that religion is a negative force and they argue so to other people who want to engage with those arguments. If you don't want to, you don't have yes, to. Yes,
0: I, I think um, behind this, this sort of complaint is, you know, the, the feeling <laughs> or the, the notion, but it's, it's often just a feeling, if I might say, uh, that, you know, religion brings so much value and so much comfort and so much happiness even and uh, guidance and what, what, any such thing to uh, religious believers that such a a forthright criticism of religious faith is just mean-spirited. It's, it's just, uh, yeah, it's not nice. <laughs> I, I
1: had a troll who made I, I think in the end it was 14 accounts in order to argue that a um, uh, that uh, mm-hmm. Richard Dawkins was mean spiritist. <laughs> and I knew it was the same person I, I kept blocking him on Twitter because he was making the same point over and over again mm-hmm. he was completely obsessed with Richard Dawkins Richard Dawkins at that time um I would often respond to him and he'd tweet me so he th- you know he um he thought I, I was a target I'm sure he was targeting other people um in that orbit and um it was, well, don't follow him if you if you don't want to hear these ideas or argue with them reasonably there's no point in calling somebody mean-spirited um because they think that you have one really bad idea
0: yeah um so I think I think we can consider this, this uh, topic discussed. It's it's probably not the most interesting, but it is very much recurring in those in those books. Um, there is there is a sense of, I mean, and maybe I just said that we shouldn't discuss this any any further. But maybe in a way, this is kind of an um, hmm, confirmation of what the new atheist was saying in the first page, which is. Uh, and this is one of their main points. They were complaining the new atheists like Harris, Dawkins, uh, in particular, and I mean the others, that um, when you do criticize religion in, in sort of in public discourse, you're automatically uh, sort of marginalized. I mean, it's just something that's not done in, in polite company. And so this is something that they wish to to push back to push back against. Uh, to push back against. And um so I think the, the the reactions sort of illustrated what what they had seen there
1: yeah there's a certain pri- privilege there's a belief that that these are privileged mm-hmm. belief systems which should not oh. be criticized and um yeah we're, I, the, the new atheists weren't prepared to to mm-hmm. um essentially exempt um religious ideas from um strong critique uh, that that every other kind of idea has to uh, put up yes.
0: with <laughs> yeah the, the next family well, It's it's more of a topic really um in which uh, arguments were concentrated is the relationship between science and religion and uh, this is something where there were many different positions um that were taken by the uh, sort of the critics of new atheism very different very divergent positions between between writers One, what has to notice at the outset is that it's commonly understood both by the new atheists and their critics, that um, at first sight on the the topic of science, uh, the defenders of religion do not have the upper hand. So they have a lot of work at this point uh, to do to to argue that there is, you know, compatible or a good or even mutually reinforcing relationship between uh, science and religion. I think it's um, sort of the d- default position uh, on, on, on both sides of the argument. And then the uh, defenders of religion will try different lines of argument. so slightly easier path is to try and argue that, okay, science uh, maybe doesn't seem to be so compatible with religious beliefs but okay science doesn't know everything so you can always craft a version of a religious faith that is somehow compatible with religious oh uh, with, sorry with scientific knowledge you can you know sort of retain only what hasn't been disproved or what you can convince others hasn't been disproved yet by uh, scientific advances and you can say, okay, this is the, the version of religion that I can maintain. And, uh, okay, it's it's not scientifically unsound. So it's it's sort of a, yeah. I mean, you, you can, go ahead. Uh, yeah, no problem.
1: Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. But, uh, the um, non-overlapping magisteria argument where science has its place it's... and religion has its place. That's yeah. one I, I see made a lot, um, and of course that's mm-hmm. what how the god delusion starts. Dawkins says that that quite rightly that that argument doesn't stand, because religious believers right. are making scientific claims about the immortality of humans, yeah. <laughs> for one thing, and uh, you know the existence of hell, how the earth came to be created. There's um, it makes a Claims so that that's that part doesn't um, really work, and then uh, of course, science and religion can be compatible, people will often argue when what they mean is that a person can believe in exactly. science and religion at the same time, but that doesn't mean that they are, are compatible, it just means that, to, that, that people have more than one framework mm-hmm. through which mm-hmm. they look at the also, world.
0: <clears throat> Sorry, this is also a very recurring point that, okay, some scientists, some of them brilliant, uh, have religious faith. But as you said, it, it doesn't really hold any logical. I mean, doesn't really hold any argumentative power.
1: I mean, the, the best, the best, the best example, I think, is mm-hmm. that the the Big Bang. Um, theory was developed by a catholic priest wasn't it but did he develop this theory by um, consulting religious texts and praying and seeking divine revelation or did he um, develop it by also being a physicist and doing science the answer is that he developed this using science the fact that he also had religious belief is Mm -hmm. kind of incidental it is it is
0: (laughs) um a large number of variations around this point, but the objective is always the same, is to claim that there is at least one version of one faith which science has not disproved yet. There is, I think we've gone through maybe the the more (laughs) prudent versions of arguing for that. So indeed, one can argue this is the non-overlapping magisteria strategy that, okay, science deals with truth claims and religious, religion sorry, deals with uh, moral claims or value claims, so they cannot you know, uh, collide with one another. But this, of course, is just uh, completely false because religions make very many uh, truth claims. There is indeed the idea that it's not an idea, the fact that some scientists are religious, but okay, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't prove that the methods are compatible. Um the methods to attain knowledge? Yeah.
1: I had I had a look. Go ahead. I, I had a look through um the scientists that were um on answers in Genesis, those who believe that the the world is, is right. um young earth creationism and mm, uh, they were nearly all chemists. So there <laughs> there weren't any um, physicists or biologists or people who would really have um, be be uh, be fully faced with the evidence that the, the world is much more much older than that and that humanity has evolved.
0: But yeah, probably no geologists.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't have thought so. Yeah,
0: no. it's um yes, I I have to say uh, I actually uh, know at least one physicist. I mean, I am myself. Uh, my, my my job is as a researcher in physics, and I do know at least one physicist who, as far as I understood, does believe that the Earth is uh, this, this young, about 6,000 years old, and we had a few discussions around that, so it does exist, and he was pretty, I mean, a pretty strong researcher by all accounts, so again, just to illustrate that it exists, but it doesn't show that the religious and scientific approaches to knowledge are compatible in any way there's also actually more ambitious um, lines of argument that were um, you know followed by by some writers like Dinesh de Souza and um, John Lennox who is also a mathematician if I remember correctly um, they do not shy away from the argument or from, from the from the sort of compatibility issue between religion and and science they they are more ambitious and they try to say that okay some things that might seem um, absurd um, according to scientific knowledge well actually if you know science even better uh, than maybe the the average educated person you would understand that this is possible Um, for instance I mean one you know recurring point is, okay, maybe God is uh, the cause for the Big Bang. Uh, this is something that comes often. Or you have uh, John Lennox, I think, who tries to argue that um, maybe Jesus, when he was crucified and then taken to the, this cave, uh, um, then I think on a few, <laughs> a few days later, so to say, Um, people were to visit his grave went to visit his grave and they found that it was empty and they saw the the linen in which his body had been wrapped was uh, you know folded neatly there while his body was gone and I think John Lennox argues that somehow through quantum tunneling the body of Jesus went through the the cloth and uh, (laughs) So this is how Jesus sort of um, escaped his, his clothes, so to say, without disturbing the, the shape of the clothes or something like that. I mean, it's, it's, I couldn't believe that I was reading that from a a, a mathematician uh, an academic. But um, yes, this is what happens when you try to Argue for a predetermined conclusion. Uh, one can say uh, you make very bad arguments, which you think are brilliant, by the way. <laughs> um, yeah. So these are a few instances of people trying to work around the um, the the many known and easily uh, explainable, you know, conflicts between scientific knowledge and and uh, religious beliefs. There is, there is also the question of morality, which, okay, if the uh, question of science and its relation with religion was seen by default as the, the home turf of the atheists, maybe um, many religious writers hoped to uh, establish that uh, religious, um, sorry, yeah, I mean, that, that religious believers have the upper hand on the question of morality. Um, so here they were arguing, maybe from a more confident uh, <laughs> uh, position. Although, I mean, I think we've already made several arguments in that sense. Uh, if 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 you accept, I mean, if you claim that the the religious, sorry, the, the source for moral values is is, the, is your holy book, then you have many. Um, you know, insane commandments to to defend from from your God. So you sort of uh, put yourself in a very difficult position.
1: And uh, we we have the the problem there where there's just this assumption that morality is only worth anything if it's Mm. worth something outside humanity. Whereas in reality, morality appears to be a product of human evolution. If something like a God does actually exist, there's no reason to think that it would have had the same evolutionary pressures as us and would have developed the same um, the, the same uh, moral intuitions as us. Why, for example, would the Bible describe God as jealous um, when he is the only one? Um, you know, it, there wouldn't he hasn't got had that evolutionary pressure for mate guarding or that that humans have, which produces this idea of you know se- mm. sexual morality, for example, um, to produce children. God God wouldn't have that pressure. It's um, essentially the I, I think the argument that that morality is um, is only only worthwhile if it's objective, and in objective they mean absolute and existing outside humans, fails on two grounds. First of all, their morality isn't objective, it's one framework among many, and, and it has a long way to go if it wants to prove itself to be anything else. And second, there isn't a good enough reason to suggest that morality would be better if it was um, not human uh, morality, but but something larger, the universe, um, presumably is entirely indifferent if we torture each other to death.
0: Right. I mean, yes, <laughs> that is true. Uh, this, this, again, there's, there's many variations on, on, on this argument, and indeed the idea that without religion, you do not have a objective, quote-unquote, source for moral values is is the most common one. I think by now most religious apologists have noticed that atheists do not tend to um, become killers or rapists or whatever the the moment they they stop believing. Uh, So they, they are a bit more sophisticated than to just claim that atheists are immoral, but... What they often claim is that atheists are sort of using the the moral values that derive from religion without um, recognizing the, their origin.
1: That that argument particularly um, annoys me because that then fails to recognize that Christianity is using the religious frame, the the moral frameworks of, of things that came before it. So in the West, um, Christianity is essentially Um, rooted very, very deeply in Augustinianism. And that has a strong um, element of uh, Greek and Roman um, morality and, and philosophy in it. And then it has the history of Judaism, and the, you know, and this all, all originated in, in the Middle East, and so there was a whole um, sort of culture going on there, and uh, everything, you can trace everything back. We, we can trace certain of our ideas and certain of our, our metaphors. Um, you know, I, I, I might say, for example, you know, I, I, I'll carry the cross of something which tem- to mean that I'll, I'll make a sacrifice on behalf of others. This uh this doesn't mean that I actually believe what is being said. Ideas evolve through different stories, but the Christians sometimes act as mm-hmm. though they'd like us to mm-hmm. just start with them and also start at their best bits, conveniently overlooking things like the Inquisition and then um, <laughs> and then make up this lovely myth of uh Judeo Christian. Um, Western civilization, where in fact Western civilization mostly persecuted Mm -hmm. (laughs) Jews repeatedly.
0: Yes, I I think we can transition to the the final topic, uh, in which I saw a lot of, you know, friction, and and I think everyone saw that, which is the topic of Islam. Uh, I think in particular Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens were singled out for uh, their strong criticism of this religion in particular because what they argued is that there is quite a plausible line of uh, understanding between the um, the holy texts of, of this religion and the worst behaviour, uh, the worst behaviours of people who claim to be Muslims in the world and who claim to act following their the, the religious texts. Um, So there was a lot of pushback against that. And here, uh, whereas on on most other topics, most of the criticism came from uh, religious believers themselves and maybe more Christians and conservative uh, writers Um, on on this very topic of Islam, (laughs) the the pushback came mostly from the political left because there, there is this Intuition that uh, criticizing Islam is a form of intolerance, xenophobia, racism, blah, blah. And I think this has been discussed really to uh, death by now.
1: Yeah, mean. It- This is one of the the most tiresome things. When I first started criticizing religion, I focused mostly on Christianity, simply because of where I am and my own history. And then I was considered a a lefty, um, a far lefty. And then um, a lot Mm -hmm. of ex-Muslims joined the movement. And um, then suddenly we were far right loons. And this is where post-colonial guilt is mixing with liberal ethics, where the reality is that, yes, um, Western countries did trample all over a lot of um, other countries, um, including Muslim-majority ones. So now we mustn't ever criticise any ideas at all or think any moral frameworks are better in order to try and compensate. I think this is this is something liberals um, need not to fall prey to, and instead support the liberals yeah. in those communities. I
0: mean, this sort of the this topic is not so much at the forefront anymore. But I think if it ever reemerges, uh, we will see that the the conversation has not moved much um, past the level of maybe 2016, which was not very much better than the level of 2006. Uh, I think there hasn't been much inroads made by the, the simple points that that you were just making uh, unfortunately
1: this is where I think your your book is going to have value because the, it, I, I think people have lost um, interest in this conversation yeah. because it was so strong for so long and it went right. on and on and nothing ever moved, and you have now um, because I, I have seen your book, you have now produced um, really a, an excellent kind of summary in chunks of the biggest um aspects of it and this is going to come up because religion isn't going to go away again there are going to, people are going to keep being born they're going to keep wanting to know the arguments for and against religion where that, you know so those of us like me who have become tired and jaded of having the same conversations about religion over and over again and moved on to a different ideology i'm now looking at critical social justice, we have got bored. The religious believers of course haven't because they still believe it. So there is val- There's great value in having a book like yours out there for the young person who hasn't come, ag- gone, ag- been through this new atheist era and seen all these arguments and become sick of them to get a good solid grasp on them. So I, I, I think your book will, will stand in good stead for quite some time to come, precisely because the arguments are not going to change.
0: Mm. Okay. Well, thanks for the <laughs> the very positive outlook on the book. Uh, I, I think we can um, we can switch the conversation to what you just mentioned: critical social justice for the little bit of time that we have left. Um, so. If there is one criticism that I would make of the new atheists, maybe Dawkins or Hitchens, I mean, something maybe mild, I don't know, but sometimes they like to quote this sentence by Stephen Weinberg, which you were alluding to earlier, which is with or without religion, good people can behave well and bad people can do evil. But for good people to do evil, that takes religion. So this is the quote by uh, Nobel Prize physicist, Nobel Prize laureate. Uh, physicist Stephen Weinberg, and um, so it's a nice piece of rhetoric for sure but it's a bit very simplistic in a way so you could see that sometimes the new atheists would get asked about the crimes of uh, for instance the socialist dictatorships which the opponents of new atheism often like to blame on atheism itself which is a serious mistake by the way but you could see the reaction of the new atheists, they would probably then uh, retort that blind faith in any doctrine or system, and not only religion is dangerous. So in a way, this is a little bit of a step back from this, this sentence by Weinberg. And um, I don't think that if you press them on this point, the new atheists would say that all people involved in the mass crimes of the most destructive political ideologies were intrinsically bad. I think they would certainly uh, agree that, okay, other systems of belief, other doctrines, can cause good people to do bad things, to uh, retain the terminology by Weinberg. And, um, yeah, this is not really a contradiction, but it shows that sometimes by... (laughs) One can go a little bit too far in, in uh, in the rhetoric... And um, I mean, yeah,
1: but that, that's what we see. Sorry, but if you had someone like Christopher Hitchens saying religion poisons everything, I'd adapt that to zealous adherence to ideology poisons everything.
0: Right.
1: And with um, with religion, you you see, you know, fathers killing their own daughters for having betrayed their their honour, according to some cultural narrative that is deeply embedded in a religious faith or trying to beat the gay gayness out of their sons um, with some particularly devout um uh christians this is um yeah but then we we also see right now with um critical social justice ideas we see people disowning their family members Mm -hmm. um for not believing the right things we're not seeing people being murdered um, in great numbers, um, because of these these ideological differences, but we, we see that same mentality. I watched um, the the murder of a poor young woman who's and when she was uh, she was falsely accused of having um, torn up the Quran. And, um, and, and she was, she was beaten um, to death by a crowd, and then she was set on fire, and then she was run over, and it was this kind of mob frenzy. Now, this is a, a real part of, of humanity when we get into an ideological um, madness of mobs, um, or madness of crowds, as, as uh, you know, Douglas Murray put it in his latest book, and we saw that same atmosphere in the videos at Evergreen College. Uh, they, you know, they they didn't grab anybody and beat them to death, but they were stopping cars with baseball bats. they yep. you know, you can see that they were were not too far away from that mentality where they could actually um, kill somebody, uh, lynch somebody, essentially for 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 having the wrong kind of thought.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. So this is what I wanted to get at. And, okay, we have just a few minutes, I think, left now, but uh, with that in mind, um, would you like to present your counterweights initiative, which uh, tries to uh, fight back against the the, the worst examples of this sort of politically religious, so to say, mentality uh, among uh, uh, advocates of critical social justice?
1: Yeah, so um, I think an, an essay I'd, I'd refer people to of, of mine, which predates Counterweight, it is called Denario an and it's called Where Now for the New Atheists? Mm -hmm. And I argue in that one that, um, you know, the the new atheist movement has died down, but that we haven't lost um, ideologies, we haven't lost um, extremism and terrible ideas, and we still need to address this. And so I'm arguing for that same uncompromising Critical stance and that same evidence-based epistemology, and demand for liberal principles to be applied to authoritarians on both the left and the right. So we're seeing, and I am addressing particularly the critical social justice um, authoritarians because they have a lot of cultural power at the moment. But we see as well that there are um, extremists on the on the right that, um, particularly in the US, with the uh, the Q and, um conspiracy theorists and um, and people and that you know we're seeing an increasing um, rise of of white nationalism and the idea that that whites are about to be genocided and um, we need to be able to push back at these as well. We need to be able to be consistently liberal rather than being anti anything, mm. and this is why I, I think. Uh, this is where I think the limitations of the New Atheists, and I'm including myself here, were, is that there's a tendency there to be anti-something, and you can't really define your identity um, in relation to something you don't believe in. And in reality, the New Atheists didn't. So, you know, Richard Dawkins' um, society, it wasn't called the Society of Atheism, it was called the, the Reason and Science I think it wasn't and this is you know these are what we are for and Counterweight similarly is for um science reason and liberalism it's a liberal humanist organization and so we would call ourselves pro-liberal before anti-woke even though in reality when we're trying to help people deal with authoritarianism in their workplace it is the critical social justice authoritarianism that they're dealing with. When they Mm. turn up to work, um, if they have to do a statement, they're not expected to recite the Apostles Creed or to um, make a commitment to white supremacy, they're expected to repeat a certain set of values to do with critical social justice ideas of equity, diversity and inclusion. That is um, a significant problem. It is not the only problem in the world, but it is one that we need to push back at and we need to push back at it properly from a liberal position rather than a reactionary position, a kind of counter-authoritarianism. So that, that mm. is what counterweight is about. And I think that I have brought the spirit of new atheism <laughs> That that search for, for truth and that unwillingness to um, bow to any sacred cows just because, um, you know, certain criticizing certain things are taboo in society. I think that is what we are bringing into counterweight and in, into other organizations um, right now that are liberal and that are pushing back at critical social justice in an ethical non-reactionary way
0: yes okay so i i will make sure to uh, link to um, you know the counterweight website in the in the description when we do publish the interview because i think it's definitely a, a nice initiative which uh, maybe complements what is already happening in universities with the fire and uh, heterodox academy um, yeah yes
1: yeah, we we work co- cooperative collaboratively with with them, often referring people to them. They're they're wonderful. So you know, of all the organisations in the US that are dealing with things, fire and heterodox academy are, are really thoroughly ethical um, ones that I I could re- recommend very strongly for anyone in academia. We need we need more for people in employment.
0: Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what counterways is focused on. Uh, okay, Helen, you've been very generous with your time and with your thoughts. <laughs>
1: well, thank you very much. It's, it's always good to to talk to you. You always have interesting things to say, and I, I will certainly um, try and get people to to ha- to have an interest in your book. I I think I think it's still, you know, it, it's not the hot topic at the at the moment, but it is still. An important and it's a rigorous look at a significant issue that's not going to go away for at least a few centuries. So I'm, um, I'm, very, I'm very glad that you wrote that book and I thank you for writing it.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks very much again for coming on the podcast, for uh, revisiting these sort of not so hot topics uh, with me around religion and atheism. Thank you for listening to Liberté Académique. We are a science, critical thinking and freedom podcast. We interview researchers, teachers and authors who have interesting ideas and who defend free, rational, evidence-based thought. We oppose as best we can a sort of anti-intellectualism coming from a section of the intellectual class. We carry out interviews in English and in French. You can find all our episodes on YouTube and on SoundCloud as well as on the main podcasting platforms such as iTunes, Stitcher and several others. We are also present on Twitter at ACADFreedom and also on Facebook.